So Nick, I've noticed in my clinic that for a lot of the women that come and see me, I am their only doctor. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the hardest things about that, Faye, is that it's really hard as an OBGYN just not having been in the primary care sphere for a couple of years now to know where to reach out and look for, like, what do I do to do this screening or that screening? Yeah, exactly. Like, I completely have forgotten when to screen people for, you know, their lipid panel, when to get their A1C, when do they get the colonoscopies. But the good thing is this is all there on the OBG Project. If you head on over to the OBG Project's website, they have a special tab entitled Primary Care that actually has a lot of updates regarding things like treating type 2 diabetes, screening for things like abdominal aortic aneurysm and colonoscopy, lipid therapies, all the stuff that was really, really useful to you once upon a time and you probably forgot, but maybe you need once again. And while I still tell all my patients that they definitely need a primary care doctor and not just an OBGYN, this way at least you're able to kind of hold them over until they do find that PCP. The OBG Project has a product called OBG First that's free for chief residents for one whole year. If you head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you as a chief resident can get access to all of their stuff for absolutely free. But even if you're not a chief resident, check out the OBG Project look at the resources they have on the website, and get better in your clinic. All right, guys. Welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Emily Seidler, who is a clinical instructor at Harvard Medical School, as well as the Associate Clerkship Director of OBGYN at Beth Israel. She's a full-time employee at Harvard Medical Faculty Physicians and a clinician at Boston IVF. Um, and she is going to be talking to us today about Infertility 101. What does the generalist need to know? So Dr. Seidler, thank you again for coming on to the show to be with us. Thanks so much for having me. All right. I'm excited for Infertility 101, Dr. Seidler. What are we going to learn about today? So I know you guys had that awesome sort of infertility evaluation podcast, which was fantastic. And this is sort of a follow-up to that one, infertility treatment. So how do we, you know, tailor our therapy to the patient's diagnosis um, and going through sort of the main causes of infertility and how we would treat each one of those? All right. So to start us off, Dr. Seidler, can you talk to us a little bit about what are the treatment and therapies aimed at in particular? And then can you also um, talk to us a little bit about before we, you know, get people to ovulation induction and things like that, what are some general lifestyle things that people could do better to improve their fertility? Yeah, great question. So in general, in the world of infertility treatment, and this might be, you know, 101 and 201, we're going to kind of get into the weeds here. So therapy is aimed at correcting reversible causes and then overcoming irreversible factors because sometimes we don't have sort of a pointed uh, reversible cause that we can, uh, you know, pinpoint with our testing. Treatment has really come a long way. I mean, if we think about Louise Brown, the oldest IVF baby in the world, she's 41. I mean, this is a this is a baby of a field compared to other, you know, 
forms of treatment in the medical world, for how how much it's utilized, it's really quite a young field. And it's come a really long way, especially in ART or assisted reproductive technology. Um, IVF is just so much more um, efficient and um, effective compared to when it first started. So going over a couple terms that these two really confused me as a med student and resident, and I just need to demystify these really quick, uh, fecundity and fecundability. I mean, right? These are these terms are just it weird, right? Sound sounds, about the same. Sounds about yeah. the same, exactly. <laughs> right. So I break it down that fecundity is fertility. So it's the exact same number of letters. They're both nine letters. They sound really similar. Fecundity is fertility. It's just the ability to conceive and produce offspring. The word that we often use, this weird word fecundability, that sounds a lot like probability, right? Ability in both of them. And it's just the probability of getting pregnant in a single menstrual cycle. So this is where the numbers come in. This is, you know, the first six months of trying to conceive, 80% of couples will conceive. And in the first year, five more percent, so 85% total will conceive. And that's where we get our 15% infertility rate. Generally, we define infertility as, you know, regular exposure to sperm, unprotected intercourse for at least a year, and that's where we're getting that 15%, but that's for younger patients, so under age 35. Over age 35, you know, depending on the exact age, especially the female partner, their chance, you know, is a little lower, and we still would expect that a majority of those couples should conceive within six months. And so that's why we generally have the rule of if it's been six months for patients, the female partner is 35 or older, should go ahead and do that infertility evaluation and can treat them. So going on to uh, sort of the question of what you can do um, a little more conservatively first. So patients and couples should always be counseled on lifestyle modifications to improve their fertility. This involves, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear, they should stop smoking. So cigarette smoking is known to be toxic to eggs and sperm. It causes lower fertility potential and also known to increase the miscarriage rate. So that's one thing that both the female and male partner should um, definitely um, stop smoking if they're a smoker. Also reducing excessive alcohol and caffeine consumption, weight loss, and again, uh, going back, that's excessive. So caffeine, for example, is one of those sort of controversial things, but in general, having a cup or two of coffee a day is reasonable and not something that they necessarily need to stop. Um, There's a little bit of data that in an RPL population, recurrent pregnancy loss, excessive caffeine over about 250 milligrams a day um, maybe increases their miscarriage rate. But in general, I like to sort of give as few sort of restrictions to my patients as possible. They're already really stressed out um, and being told, do this, don't do that. Um, so just being reasonable about all of these um, restrictions. And then weight loss um, to a target normal BMI, and I should actually also say weight gain. So just getting to a normal sort of BMI of 20 to 25 is um, a nice goal. So whether they are underweight and potentially hypothalamic or overweight, getting to that normal BMI range is, of course, helpful for fertility. And then finally, just appropriately timing intercourse. So just doing some really basic um, teaching about the menstrual cycle and the fertile window. 
Um, intercourse should be timed just before and around the time of ovulation. I always tell patients you want sperm there waiting for the egg and not the other way around. So if you don't have intercourse until after you've ovulated, you sort of uh, miss the boat. So OPKs or ovulation predictor kits, uh, we use a lot. And patients can essentially just with cycle day one, which is first day of full flow, start using OPKs around cycle day 10 because for a normal 28-day cycle, they should ovulate around cycle day 14. They, um, It's basically just peeing on a stick like a pregnancy test, um, but it's testing LH, luteinizing hormone, instead of HCG. So remember that LH surge that we always talk about, that's what's predicting ovulation. Um, so once you have that LH surge and that OPK sort of senses that it's gone above a certain threshold, um, that means you're going to ovulate in the next 24 to 36 hours. So as soon as it turns positive, whether that's like an extra line or a smiley face, that's when you want to have intercourse that night and the next night. And it doesn't need to be, you know, exactly timed. Don't want patients sort of going crazy, like calling off work and <laughs> doing anything too, um, too ridiculous, just sort of timing intercourse once or twice around the time that they have that LH surge. And then, of course, once health and lifestyle is reasonably optimized, and that, of course, depends a lot on the female partner's age and how much time you have, um, treatment you know, may still be needed, and it varies um, depending on the cause of their subfertility. So let's move on to some of that, I guess. So say we've gotten through all of these first things. We've optimized health and lifestyle. We've gotten through the initial stress and shock of know that presenting to your office for the infertility workup. Um, what are some of the causes, I guess, that can lead to this? I know we've talked about some of them on the show before, but just to review. Yeah. So I think we should cover sort of some main causes of infertility and what that treatment is. So we're going to cover ovulatory dysfunction, tubal factor, male factor, uterine factor, and then unexplained infertility, and finally, same-sex couples and single patients. Um, so starting with ovulatory dysfunction, you know, technically this isn't infertility. I always tell patients, your chance of getting pregnant every month that you're not releasing an egg is exactly 0%, right? So if you're not ovulating, there's no chance of pregnancy. And so the WHO classifies these in sort of three different classes. So ovulatory dysfunction can be class one, class two, or class three. WHO class one is hypogonadotropic, hypogonadal, and ovulation. So breaking that down, gonadotropins are simply LH and FSH. That always seemed really confusing to me, but it's actually quite simple. It's just LH and FSH from your pituitary. So if you have hypogonadotropic, your LH and FSH are low. And then hypogonadal, of course, the female gonad is the ovary. And so that's low estrogen. So it's simply low FSH and LH, which is not talking to your ovary and telling it to make estrogen. So your estrogen is low as well. And this is a minority of ovulatory dysfunction at just 5 or 10%. Classically, we think of this as patients with you know, eating disorders, anorexia, um, over-exercising, and tests love to ask about female athlete triads. So when you think of, you know, that triad of low BMI, menstrual dysfunction, and low bone density, sometimes they have uh, like stress fractures. So two points to really know about these patients. One is that for their low bone density and their bone health, you can't just give estrogen. That won't work. These women need nutrition support. So they need to see a counselor if they have an eating disorder, they need to see a nutritionist, maybe who specializes in, you know, sort of female athletes and giving uh, the right 
caloric balance. Um, that's really what they need. And, you know, gaining weight in an appropriate, healthy way um, is going to be the most helpful thing in terms of improving their bone health. And then to conceive, they really need injectable gonadotropins. I think of hypohypo and PCOS as like two ends of a spectrum. PCOS is like the loud, chaotic rave. And you go in and like it is crazy, it is disorganized, there's tons of hormone all over the place and no messages are getting through. You're like screaming from one end of the room to the other to be heard. Hypo-hypo is a silent, empty room, right? There's no FSH and LH in the pituitary to release. So those oral agents like Clomid and Letrozole, I mean, they're like knock, knock, and no one's home, right? There's no LH and FSH that's going to be released. So then WHO class 2 is normogonadotropic, normoestrogenic. So normal FSH and LH when you test them and their estrogen level is about normal. This is most patients, 70 to 85% of anovulatory patients. And this includes our best friend PCOS that I'm sure you all can't get enough of. So PCOS, of course, we have to optimize their health weight loss often, um, improve or control insulin resistance. And to get them pregnant, they need ovulation induction usually. So typically they don't you know, necessarily need IVF but um, unless there's something else going on. But often, especially if these patients are younger, ovulation induction is really all they'll need. And this can be with timed intercourse or with IUI, but really timed intercourse is sufficient because again, the only issue is just not releasing that egg. So letrozole is your first line when it comes to PCOS. And this was from um, a really sort of practice-changing paper in 2014, um, Legro et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think you've heard of it. Um, it was comparing Clomid and letrozole for PCOS patients trying to conceive. And it showed that letrozole was associated with, a higher, um, with higher ovulation rates and higher live birth rate. So that was a total game changer. We had sort of classically always use Clomid for ovulation induction, and now we use letrozole first line uh, for PCOS. You certainly can use Clomid if a patient um, for some reason can't use letrozole or if the patient doesn't respond. Clomid and letrozole, these two oral ovulation induction medications, have different mechanisms of action, but really the same end result. So Clomid works at the level of the brain. It's a CIRM. Um, and letrozole works at the level of the ovary. It's an aromatase inhibitor. But what you need to remember, just, this was always so confusing to me, and it's very simple. They both just trick the brain into thinking that estrogen is low. And remember, FSH and estrogen have that negative feedback. So if the brain thinks estrogen is low, FSH will go up. Follicle-stimulating hormone, so it's going to stimulate follicles and get you to ovulate. So lastly, WHO class 3. This is hypergonadotropic, hypoestrogenic anovulations. So this is that classic like POI patient or Turner syndrome. This is the remaining, you know, 10 to 20% of patients. And patients who have POI in terms of treatment for their future fertility, some haven't fully sort of evolved and do still have some remaining eggs and can go through treatment for potential egg freezing or IVF. But often if once we catch them, their FSH is already really elevated and their AMH um, and antral follicle count are really low um, and you know potentially there's really no eggs to retrieve, then these patients generally need donor egg. Um, and sort of bigger picture, these patients are going to need HRT, give them back some of that estrogen to protect their bones um, long term. 
Thank you, Dr. Seiler. That's a really good overview of ovulatory dysfunction and kind of what causes it and then the different treatments for that. Can you talk to us a little bit more about those other things that we look for in our infertility treatments? So, you know, we send everybody to get that sonohist or the HSG. So what happens if that comes back and, you know, they don't have pain tubes? Yeah. So HSG um, showing block tubes or tubal factor really is simple. It means they need IVF. So if both tubes are totally blocked and, you know, the egg that's released from the ovary can't be picked up by the end of the tube and then the sperm can't meet up with the egg in the tube, fertilize and sort of grow and move through the tube over several days before going into the uterus to implant, clearly the tubes are super important in terms of, um, you know, getting pregnant either on your own or through IUI. And so IVF is really the only option. And importantly, if a patient has a hydrosalpink, so that's that sort of dilated sausage-like tube on HSG, it's often due to distal tubal scarring. Um, And most commonly, this is from endometriosis, but also from STDs or STIs, um, a history of PID. And then we think these sort of inflammatory fluids are um, dilating the tube. And that can um, reduce pregnancy rate after embryo transfer considerably, so by up to like 50% if they're left in situ. And so if we do find hydrocelpanks or bilateral hydrocelpinges, we would likely remove those prior to treatment to improve their pregnancy rate after an embryo transfer. You know, one of the things from being on an infertility rotation is that I think women coming into the office oftentimes take the burden of infertility on themselves, Um, but it takes two to tango, right? Totally. Absolutely. Male factor is something we see not infrequently up to a quarter, maybe even um, more uh, of couples coming in have male factor. And sometimes it's more than one thing. You know, someone can have block tubes and uh, low sperm counts. And so you know, those numbers are hard to tease out, but we see it all the time, um, especially a young couple that comes in in their 20s. Male factor is sort of at the top of the list in terms of what might be causing their infertility. Um, and so we think about sort of if sperm is present, but they have just low counts, um, and that's generally under about 4 million total modal sperm counts, we can do something called ICSI. So ICSI, or intracytoplasmic sperm injection, ICSI, um, was also a huge game changer in our field in terms of allowing couples like this who otherwise probably would never get pregnant or IUI would just not be sufficient, allow them to get pregnant. And so doing just straight IVF or in vitro fertilization, which is the method of fertilization that's generally used, just sprinkling, you know, a couple million sperm over the eggs and letting them fertilize like they would in the body um, is found to be sort of less effective when uh, counts are lower. And so ICSI involves injecting individually each egg with one sperm. Um, It's done under the microscope and we find that fertilization rates are generally very good that once counts are low uh, using ICSI. If a man is azospermic and we find that it's obstructive, meaning he's making lots of sperm in the testes, but it just can't get out, that's a pretty easy fix. Um, Well, easy for me, maybe not easy for him, but (laughs) he can undergo a tessie, um, which is essentially just surgically obtaining sperm directly 
from the testicles. So those patients also can undergo IVF and usually we'll use IVF with ICSI um, for those patients just so we're using as little sperm as possible because they did get sperm, you know, obtained surgically and we want to, you know, make sure we have enough to go through, you know, if they needed several cycles. If they're azospermic and non-obstructive, that means they're just not making much sperm. And just to simplify things, especially for test purposes, that often means they're going to need donor sperm. Um, Dr. Seiler, I feel like currently, as I'm on REI, there are lots of patients that get referred to the REI docs at Brown because they have a large submucosal fibroid or you know they have a lot of polyps or something like that in their endometrial cavity. Um, and they're not necessarily referred for infertility, but they're referred because you know they may want to have children in the future and their docs are afraid that this might cause them to, for some reason, not be able to get pregnant. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a tricky one. So in general, the data show that these sorts of things considered a uterine factor, but like very common polyps, uh, submucosal fibroids are likely not an independent cause or reason for infertility, just sort of in isolation. But it's just that when I generally am, you know, capturing a patient who's coming to me for infertility and we're doing treatment, for example, with IVF and an embryo transfer, we just don't feel comfortable sort of transferring a precious embryo that, you know, they've gone through so much to get into a cavity that isn't perfect. So we tend to optimize the cavity with, um, you know, shaving down those submucosal fibroids, plucking out those polyps. The data isn't great in terms of do you need to intervene on patients who haven't started trying to conceive yet and happen to have, you know, a submucosal fibroid. Um, you could sort of go either way. And I would also use sort of their symptoms to guide me. Do they have really heavy periods? Um, do they have intermenstrual spotting that's super bothersome? That might be a reason. Um, but in general, you know, they're pretty um, conservative in terms of how we can treat these. Some mucosal fibroids and endometrial polyps, of course, can be removed hysteroscopically. Um, and those are really the ones I'm concerned about. If I'm seeing an intramural fibroid, you know, one or two centimeter, certainly subserosal, I'm not really worried about those. And a uterine septum should really be corrected. They can play a significant role in infertility. And so if they do have a uterine septum, especially a larger one over a couple centimeters, that can be resected hysteroscopically with either just cold scissors or using energy. Um, and intracavitary adhesions is another thing that we see, especially a patient who's had, you know, maybe multiple miscarriages and a couple DNCs. And we find that they have intracavitary adhesions. Certainly, we're going to resect those before undergoing therapy. All right. And there's also this last sort of broad category of unexplained infertility. What is unexplained infertility and what can we do about that when we don't know what we're going after? Yes. Ugh. Unexplained infertility I see so, so often. Um, and this includes age-related subfertility. And so testing basically comes back completely normal, but they're unable to conceive after, you know, six months or a year. And we're essentially treating empirically. We're covering our bases, I tell patients. There is something wrong. We just can't pinpoint it with our testing. And so it's probably something at the microscopic level that we'll, you know, never be able to know. Perhaps the eggs and sperm aren't, you know, quite unquote quote unquote, finding each other. We basically are empirically treating to try to cover anything that might be going on that's abnormal. 
Um, in general, patients can start with medicated IUIs with Clomid or Letrozole. Um, and if they're unable to conceive after doing that for three to four cycles, they should probably move on to IVF. And a lot of this, honestly, there's um, sort of the art of medicine comes in, and it has to do with um, a lot of factors, uh, female partner's age, um, if they have insurance coverage. Those are you know, two huge considerations that might tailor their therapy. In general, a medicated IUI, I call that upping the ante. It's basically the idea of giving Clomid or Letrozole to get more than one egg that month, and it's like putting chips on the table. You're not you know, trying to get twins or triplets. You're trying to just increase your odds of conceiving. Um, and then we're monitoring them and giving a trigger shot. That's either an HCG-based or Lupron-based trigger to trigger ovulation, um, and that's sort of boosting and timing perfectly their ovulation. And then an IUI that's simply bringing more sperm closer to the egg. It's actually like really basic when you breaking, break, break it down. Um, it's just upping the ante and sort of boosting their menstrual cycle. If they have to move on to IVF, um, IVF can involve a fresh embryo transfer on day three often or day five. Um, and generally as a field, we're moving a bit more towards day five embryo transfers. Um, but it can also involve freezing embryos and then later doing a frozen embryo transfer cycle. Another sort of big consideration is if a patient's going to do PGT or not. So PGT is pre-implantation genetic testing. Um, PGTA, so PGT-A, uh, A for aneuploidy, was formerly called PGS. Um, and this is an adjunct to treatment that patients can elect to do or not. This is essentially a selection tool. So the way I explain it to patients is, you know, this doesn't change your embryos. If you come out of an IVF cycle with, you know, four embryos, this is just allowing us to select which one do we think is the normal, chromosomally normal embryo. And it involves a trophectoderm biopsy at the blastocyst stage. So if you look at a blastocyst, which is a day five embryo, it has hundreds of cells. The perimeter are trophectoderm cells that become the placenta. And then there's a little sort of cluster of cells called the inner cell mass that becomes the fetus. And a blastocyst um, embryo biopsy is sampling essentially four to eight cells from the trophectoderm, sort of far away from the inner cell mass, um, and then freezing down the embryo and sending the sample away to be um, sequenced. And then we basically can decide, you know, can figure out of those four embryos which one, if any, is chromosomally normal. And you know, theoretically, that should increase their pregnancy rate and decrease their miscarriage rate. Um, and you can see how knowing that um, the sort of rate of aneuploidy is directly correlated with a patient's age. So as the female partner gets older, the rate of aneuploid embryos is going to go up. And so you can imagine a 30-year-old with four embryos, PGT probably isn't necessary. Probably three or even all four of her embryos are normal. But a 40-year-old with four embryos you know, then you might be looking at three of them are abnormal and one is normal and we're trying to select that one. Um, interestingly, some recent studies like the STAR trial um, and RCT looking at PGT really hasn't shown a huge benefit over standard morphology. So looking under the microscope and grading the embryo based on how it looks. Um, so more to come with that. It's some really interesting research right now, but definitely something that's a hot topic in our field right now.
Um, so I think one last category of patients that we sometimes see in the REI clinic is uh, same-sex couples or patients who are coming in without a partner, and they don't necessarily have infertility, but um, they may also need help getting pregnant. Um, what are some things that we can offer them? In general, a same-sex female couple uh, has a few options. So one is something called TDI or therapeutic donor insemination. It's essentially just an IUI with donor sperm. Another option is if the two partners both want to be involved, there's something called PAR, partner-assisted reproduction, sometimes called reciprocal IVF. So this is pretty cool. It's something we can offer that one female partner uses her eggs and the other partner carries the um, pregnancy. And then traditional IVF is something that we mostly are looking to use if TDI fails. So if they end up being in that, you know, 15% of patients who isn't able, uh, who doesn't conceive after either six or 12 um, TDIs or donor sperm inseminations. And a lot of this, you know, for us, again, in Massachusetts is insurance, um, which unfortunately doesn't cover just those donor sperm inseminations, but will kick in if they find that the patient now meets criteria for infertility. So she may need to go on to traditional IVF, um, have eggs retrieved, embryos created, and then transferred back into her. Um, often with TDI or therapeutic donor insemination, these are like super low tech. We can essentially just time an insemination with one partner's menstrual cycle. And this is often what we're using also for um, just a woman who doesn't have a partner and is using donor sperm. And we can do this, you know, really low tech with just OPKs or ovulation predictor kits at home. And when that turns positive, have them come in for the IUI the next morning may require ovulation induction if they're not ovulatory, just like any other woman that you're considering, you know, all of her medical issues. PAR or reciprocal IVF, um, we essentially are doing ovarian stimulation and an egg retrieval on one partner and then creating embryos with donor sperm and transferring an embryo into the other partner's uterus for her to carry. Um, and then lastly, same-sex male couples, of course, require donor egg and a gestational carrier. And just some terminology, like the language of surrogate versus gestational carrier. In general, a traditional surrogate is sort of um, more of a historical artifact. It refers to a woman who it's her egg and uterus. So in the past, often men would just be able to give a sample, a sperm sample, and then they would do um, an insemination into a traditional surrogate. And so, of course, it would be her egg, and then she's carrying the pregnancy as well. But unfortunately, this led to as you can imagine, a lot of sort of legal and ethical implications because that woman, you know, is two-thirds of that pregnancy. She's the egg and uterus. Um, so much cleaner is to use a gestational carrier who's just carrying the pregnancy. Um, and that's an embryo made from a different woman's donor egg um, and then one of the male partner's sperm. So it's just, you know, awesome what we can offer now in the LGBTQ community um, with transgender patients. We're also seeing, you know, female to male transgender patients who are coming in and wanting egg freezing. So they want fertility preservation prior to, you know, completing their transition. Um, and it's just awesome all the options we have now. Yeah, well, thank you again, Dr. Siler. This is a really awesome course of Infertility 101 and 201 and probably even beyond. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Thanks so much. I mean, this was really fun, and um, I hope everyone sort of got a great overview of the infertility treatments we can offer now. Hey, why don't we try to summarize? Absolutely. So we first talked about therapy 
basically aiming towards correcting reversible causes and then overcoming those irreversible causes. And then we also defined fecundity and fecundability. So fecundity, which is fertility or the ability to conceive and produce offspring, and fecundability, which is that probability of getting pregnant in a single menstrual cycle. Um, we also talked about counseling patients about lifestyle modifications to improve their fertility overall. Um, and those things include uh, very simple things like stopping smoking, reducing excess alcohol and caffeine intake, weight loss, um, and then also timing intercourse by using OPKs and overall health and lifestyle modifications to become more healthy. But we do know that treatment may still be necessary. We then moved into some of the causes of infertility. Our first is not really a cause of infertility per se, but is a common reason for folks to present for an infertility evaluation. That's ovulatory dysfunction. This is broken down into three classes by the WHO, the first being hypogonadotropic, hypogonadal, and ovulation. It's about 5 to 10% of women. Classically, you're thinking about anorexia, over-exercising, female athlete triad. Hypo-hypo patients need injectable gonadotropins, and also remember that they need not just estrogen for bone health, but they need nutritional support and treatment to help address the underlying causes of hypo-hypo. Next, we move into class two, or the normogonadotropic, normoestrogenic patients. This is the majority of patients with ovulatory dysfunction. Think classically about PCOS. So optimize these patients' health with weight loss and improved insulin control, or and then using ovulation induction with timed intercourse as our first line. Again, letrozole is now the preferred treatment. Clomid is another treatment that's available as well, but have a similar end result, though different mechanisms. Again, they both trick the brain into thinking estrogen is low, so the FSH goes up. Clomid works at the level of the brain as a CIRM. Letrozole works at the level of the ovary as an aromatase inhibitor. Finally, class three by the WHO criteria is hypergonadotropic, hypoestrogenic, and ovulatory infertility. This is classically POI or Turner syndrome. Um, these patients generally need donor eggs, though some can go through treatment with their own eggs. We then talked about things like tubal factor. And so if both tubes are blocked, very frankly, these patients are going to need IVF to get that egg um, to the sperm. They're going to need IVF to bypass the tubes. And for patients who have hydrosalpinks, they're going to need uh, their tubes potentially removed um, because pregnancy rates can be reduced by 50% after an embryo trans transfer if these hydrosalpinges are left in place. We also talked about male factor. So when sperm count is present, but there are low counts, um, we could potentially use something called ICSI or intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where you essentially inject one sperm into the egg. And also if the um, male partner is azospermic or does not have any sperm, um, you could potentially do something called TESI, which is obtaining sperm surgically from the testes itself and then performing ICSI. Or if there's really no sperm whatsoever, um, then donor sperm can be considered. Uterine factor is generally not an independent cause of infertility, but when uterine factors are present, we often address those so that way we can place a new embryo into the best environment possible. We then talked about unexplained infertility, which is quite common, where partners may have completely normal testing but are still unable to conceive. And we can kind of treat them by covering our bases, so starting them off with increasing their uh, 
probability of getting pregnant by having more eggs released by doing ovulation induction with clomid or letrozole and also placing more sperm closer to those eggs with intrauterine inseminations. If partners are not able to conceive, um, we can certainly then move on to things like IVF with fresh embryo transfer on day three or day five or even doing frozen embryo transfers later on. And then also considering in potentially older female patients things like PGT um, to test for euploid embryos and decreasing that miscarriage rate. Finally, we ended on all of the amazing options that are available for same-sex couples, single patients, and beyond. So for same-sex female couples, they have options including therapeutic donor insemination, which is very simple, just timing insemination with donor sperm with a partner's menstrual cycle, PAR, which is partner-assisted reproduction, or otherwise known as reciprocal IVF, which is using one partner's eggs, and then the other partner carries that pregnancy, which then requires ovarian stimulation and egg retrieval on one partner and transferring that embryo to the other partner's uterus. Um, if infertility is a factor in either of these female partners, again, you can use the same treatments that you would otherwise use, whether that addresses tubal factor, age-related subfertility, etc. Same-sex male couples require a donor egg as well as a gestational carrier, which again, gestational carriers just carry the pregnancy in this different from what you may have thought of as a surrogate, which traditionally uses a woman's egg and her uterus, which is much more complicated legally and ethically, so is not used as often. We also talked about things that are great for fertility preservation, particularly for patients who are transitioning from female to male and wish to preserve their fertility for future use. Oh, that was great, guys. Are you sure you want to go into MFM? I can't like, recruit you to an REI fellowship. That was perfect. It might be a little bit too late. Penn has already taken a Brown uh, resident for <laughs> REI anyway. All right. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to give us some support, go ahead and go on to patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our other episodes on our website, www.CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to give us any suggestions for future shows or have corrections for past shows, go ahead and give us an email at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 